Hello, welcome to Business After Hours episode nine. Today's guest was incredible. Um, there is nothing more that I enjoy than having a great conversation about business, learning about people's backgrounds, and when they're passionate, Jesus, it makes it much more enjoyable. And Richard Ascombe did not disappoint. He is an international speaker. Uh, he travels the globe talking to businesses about business, about all sorts of different topics. I've seen him speak a couple of times uh, and we, we go over how one of his recent uh, speaking events, he only had one slide in his entire half an hour presentation, uh, the letter C. Um, we talked about his background in business and there's a lot of really interesting things I did not know about Richard. Uh, some of the things that he discusses, you will also be quite shocked uh, that some of the campaigns that you've seen, national, multinational campaigns, I think maybe global campaigns, came from you know, was the brainchild of Richard or he was involved in them in some way. Uh, we talked about how he sold his business and how he transitioned into speaking and what he does now. And his passion, he's a local Grimsby boy, and his passion now is really banging the drum for the local area of northeast lincolnshire and trying to rejuvenate and increase business and all the things the good things that we want to come to this area so he was extremely passionate uh, and we discussed at length uh, both during the podcast and afterwards um how that's going to work and what's happening in the area and it was just uh, incredibly uh, inspiring to listen to so i hope you enjoy it please enjoy richard good evening Thank you for being on the podcast, sir. It's an absolute pleasure. My, I think the pleasure will be all mine. Yeah, we'll Having see. been a professional speaker, the velvety tones of your voice in this podcast will probably be <laughs> uh, to a higher level than maybe some of the other people we've had on. Well, I think that's a little unfair to them. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to start off with was um, something you mentioned to me was telling a, an old story in a new way. Hmm. Do you want to explain to me what you meant by that? Yeah, well, it's it, it's kind of a notion that I that happened upon totally accidentally last year um, at a speaking event. I was at it was one of those wonderful things where you can say I was speaking at Cambridge University. Um, I was, but it was a business conference that I was speaking at, and and there was a guy there on before me who was talking about really the construct of how stories are written and and uh, um, made and designed, so that ultimately it appeals to a wider. Uh, audience and and he was using the the method of of really where the the character comes from and and how all stories have a you know a goodie and a baddie and a villain and and what he lovingly called the non-speaking companion and you know sort of like lassie uh, for example would be classed in that story yeah. as the non-speaking companion and it sort of got me thinking about how you could apply that back into the world of business because ultimately everybody's story needs to be constructed in a way that it's interesting to listen to because if it is, then you'll remember it. And I, I spend a lot of time speaking at business events as, as my um, working life. And there's so many times that when somebody says, you know, oh, you saw so-and-so speak, what did he say? Well, I can't remember um, because it wasn't, it's not that the, the information wasn't valid or the information wasn't in, interested. It just wasn't constructed in a way that sat and, rem and you know, remained in your head. So I started to play with the idea of, of how you could utilize storytelling to its greatest degree because we are all you know as as uh, you know we were all children once um and we love the notion of stories 
and you know, reading to children, telling the stories, being the baddie, being the goodie, being the villain. Uh, you know, it's it's how you characterise something genuinely. I think is how the audience engages with it. And business speaking can be a little bit dry. Um, so my role, goal in life was to bring a little bit of um, not quite showbiz, but but just sort of a uh, you know a, a bit more of an interesting tone to it. And I happened across the story of George Lucas. Um, and I didn't realize uh, that when George Lucas was an eight-year-old boy, the first film that he saw was The Wizard of Oz. And it completely blew his mind. Because if you can remember from the original movie, it turned from black and white into color. Yep. And he'd never seen anything like that before. You've got to remember that George Lucas is an eight-year-old. So this is around about the, I guess, the 50s. So pretty, you know, revolution. So he'd not seen a colour movie. He'd not seen no, he'd seen a colour movie, but but it was just the transition from in the movie of The Wizard of Oz from black and white to colour that completely got his attention and and kept his attention. So as a result he became an absolute devotee of The Wizard of Oz. So much so that when he came to make his first movie that most people are familiar with, Star Wars, he rewrote The Wizard of Oz in the form of Star Wars in order to tell the same story but in a way that engaged with today's audience. So when you look at the characterization in Star Wars and compare it to The Wizard of Oz, it's the same movie. What? So you uh, so I'll, I'll I'm going to start so asking, I'm going to I'm going to start mentioning characters now. Yeah, okay. And see if you can see if you can work out what he So Dorothy was Luke? No. Dorothy was Leia. Okay. Princess Leia. So who okay. was who's Luke? We'll come to that. <laughs> patience, patience, my child. Young Jedi, stay with me. Um, the friendly lion, cowardly lion. C-3PO. No, Chewbacca. Uh, okay. Okay, think about it. Costume. Yeah. The look of it. I mean, this would be so much easier if you had the pictures. <laughs> Normally when I tell this story on stage, I use the pictures. Yep. And and typically by about the third image in, people are, people are then guessing what's coming next. Yep. So the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. Needs a heart. Uh, don't think about the. Don't think about the. Just in terms of the visual. The so C three PO. C three PO. There we go. Um, Wicked Witch of the West. Um, Villains always dressed in black. Vader or Darth Vader. Yeah. Uh, then you get to the non-speaking companion that I was talking about. Toto is the dog in Wizard of Oz. R two D two. R two D two. So suddenly you start <laughs> to see these patterns emerging, and then you start to look at the narrative. And although all right, the setting is entirely different, and and the principle of, uh, of the story is entirely different. But what he's done is use some very memorable characters from his childhood in order to tell the story that he wished to tell to a generation that would view his characters as something valuable. And I saw that as a, as a business sort of tool that how businesses that have a long history and a legacy and have been around for a long time struggle to engage with a new audience because they're telling the old story. They're not telling the old story in a way that the new audience wish to engage with it. And history is a wonderful thing, but it is just that, history. Um, you know, some, sometimes you have to find a way of updating history to make it exciting. And then, funnily enough, strangely, people go back to the history because they're engaged. Mm. But if you start with the history, it's like if, you know, founded in 1823, who cares? Um, you know, it's, it's most people rely on their history to tell their story, but actually, they're, to my mind, they're, they're not telling the right story. So that's where it kind of came from. 
never ever going to be able to watch Star Wars in the same way there now because I'm not a massive fan of The Wizard of Oz it, you'll be looking for it it was always a weird film for me but I did a speech last month in Orlando um, for HP and I do quite a lot of speaking in the print industry so this was their HP America's conference and and I found a little software gadget that allowed me you know the text scroll on the beginning of Star Wars yep. a long time ago in a land far far away you can rewrite it yeah. so, I re- <laughs> so I rewrote the intro for my speech but using the Star Wars music. Never seen a room fill up so quickly as when you play the Star Wars theme music at a business <laughs> conference. And basically, I did it deliberately because it was on the basis of people going, what the hell's going on in that room? Let's go and find out. That's how you draw a crowd. It's, a, it's, a, it's an, old, <laughs> an old trip, but it works treat. And it was, you know, talked about the print industry and how the print empire was going to strike back. And you can, you know, you if you use the metaphor that people are engaged with to tell the story that you wish them to hear, there's more chance of them listening. And remembering hopefully mm. I mean that's the goal the goal of any speaker first and foremost is to get a round of applause um, is then to get good feedback well at that particular event I got the highest feedback of any speaker at the event and there were 153 of them speakers so speakers at this four day conference wow. um, and so I was quite pleased about that but it's all Star Wars you know I mean I was basically you know showing them cartoons that's 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 always going to be more interesting yeah. <laughs> at, at, a, at a business conference than statistics yeah I've, I've seen a lot of people put uh, facts and percentages and quotes endless quotes on um on presentations and some of them start with the i'm in a business that was founded in xyz year and um yeah you kind of switch you've off. gone i think um you are right some of the best ones i remember are stories or they uh maybe it wasn't an in-depth story but it had some kind of narrative where it was you know this was the issue then this was what we learned and then this was the end result and it kind of they put it in a way where it's it's told like a story the examples are from time to time and i'm sure you've done this i've certainly done this is when you happen upon on the radio in the car on a journey a play of some kind or or a serial of some kind and you've never heard it before but you're listening and because it's good you continue to listen and actually when you get to your destination you don't leave the car until you hear the end yeah because it's compelling like a good book like a like 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 any good any good story you actually are the desire to get to the end outweighs the 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 value of the story there's not uh, i wouldn't say I've, i listen to the the stories like on the radio but when there is um some kind of short story I yeah don't know, if someone's someone's phoned in they yeah, give you some embarrassing so story those you definitely seem to want to listen to it's hard almost to if if someone came and switched it off, yep. you would instantly be irritated the fact you don't know the ending. Absolutely. And I think that Yeah. Do you why do you think that is? That humans have to finish a story? I think we're pre programmed to it. I mean if you yeah. this this goes back into the mists of time and, and you know, I could get I could get very deep on this if you wished, um, all the way back to uh, cavemen. Yeah. Um, you know, telling the story of the hunt. And typically they'd paint the story of the hunt on the wall and this is you know, and all the and all the tribe would sit around the fire and listen to how they'd come back with tonight's meal um you know just happens to be buffalo or whatever it was um and but they needed to tell the story of how it was caught and so you are the 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 roots of storytelling from a human perspective are very very deep um and we like it you know it's we're pre-programmed in our dna to enjoy a good story a good tale which is why storytellers typically are are more interesting people um it's just you know it's one of those things the, the way that we've all evolved as human beings i think to enjoy a good story, good film, good joke. Um, you know, we a shaggy dog story. What you know, whatever the genre. Yeah, it's much more interesting than a series of facts. 
Yeah, I agree. You don't see many historical tales that are very factual. You need to paint the picture in your mind that you can put yourself in the story that you're hearing and then you become part of it. How do you think um, businesses can benefit from storytelling in their organization? Hugely, because I mean the, the, the biggest element of all business success is good communication. Um, and the best way to communicate is in a way that that is ultimately highly communicable. Uh, if that's not nonsense, it sounded like nonsense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I go back to so the old store in a new way. You know, we did an event at Doc's Beers um, last month to talk about the brewing uh, industry in Grimsby. Um, and I invited an old family friend of mine. Uh, the, there was an irony to it because his name is Glenn Campbell. So the evening was called An Evening with Glenn Campbell, brackets, not that one. Um, and, and he's a, a barrister in Manchester, very, very um, learned gentleman, but also a very old friend of mine. And is, a, is an absolute historian beyond anything I've, anybody I've ever met of Grimsby. He's made it his business to know Grimsby's past. And because he's eloquent as well, he can tell the story really well and I asked him to come along to Docks and say right let's talk about the old brewing heritage in Grimsby where my parents worked and his parents worked which is where they met and as a result that's why I'm friendly with Glenn because children of parents friends that kind of thing um, and then relate it to Docks Docks beers so why are Docks beers the poster boy for the regeneration of Grimsby at the moment is because they're effectively telling an old story in a new way and actually, when we started to go through the parallels of how the Hewitt brothers brewed beer for their own pubs, you're sitting in a place that brews beer for its own tap room. Hmm. You start to see the link. And it, and it wasn't, you know, I mean, that, that's just one general sort of pointer. But the place, the position, the time, the relevance, the need, the want, all of those things had the same resonance. But now Grimsby needs another reason. And, and, but at the very least, you can link the story of the past to the future, but just tell it in a new way. Yeah, I, I give all credit to Docs. They've done very well at amazing telling that, that story. Yeah, it's not just job. a, just a, not just beer. No, it, a, beer a, is a consequence. Actually, ironically, I think, and if you get if you get a business story right, your product is the consequence of what you do, not the reason. Um, you know, and I learned this from the wine business. Of course, we were we were talking a little bit before we started about my past in the wine business. That that once you told the story. Uh, of how the wine was made and where it's grown and which side of the vineyard it was on and what was the name of the donkey that he went went up on to pick the grapes and all the stuff that you do as a, as a wine merchant. At the end of it lies the product, which ultimately becomes the consequence of the tale. So you then recognize the importance of the tale in order to lead somebody to the product. My dad always used to say to me he loved selling things to people that they didn't know they wanted. <laughs> um, you know, and, and so I guess in order to do that, you have to weave a narrative that makes it feel as though you haven't been sold to. Yeah, because I think if once people recognize that they're someone's in selling mode in front of them, they almost, this barrier comes up and it's like, nope, everything you're saying now is sell, 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 and I know it's sell. Whereas I think if we tell if you tell a story, mm. that barrier almost evaporates and it's they're taking that in. So one of the things that, um, that I learned about storytelling in sales was... Um, tell the story of, of how their life is without it and then the story of how their life will be with it. Absolutely. So um, don't imagine buying the thing. Imagine mm. what the life will be at, like after you have the car, you yep. know, the car of your dreams and you're driving down, you know, the 
well, M180 with the <laughs> roof down is probably not the best example. <laughs> yeah. Rock and roll. But the uh, you know, nice country <laughs> lanes and, and that sort of thing. And they imagine that and then they're bought in because it's it's selling a like a futuristic story rather than mm. historical. But um, it's hard, I think, for businesses to sometimes sell a story because if you're, you know, if you're in an industry selling something that's quite boring or quite practical or, you know, insurance can be a little bit difficult to tell the story in the history it's harder but not impossible you just then have to start applying what you do to a different environment to to demonstrate to demonstrate that the product that you're talking about is actually more relevant in in other spheres i actually had a guy come up to me a few weeks ago at a conference and he sold and what was it he was selling um it was a financial product of some kind can't remember that's how uninteresting it was i can't <laughs> actually remember what it was and he said we have a real problem engaging with people when talking about this product what would you do my first response was, don't talk about the product. Um, talk about something that the product relates to that brings you back to the product. So let's say, for example, it's insurance and it's, and it's travel insurance. Well, you don't start by talking about travel insurance. You start talking about travel. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately, oh, and by the way, when you get there, it probably makes sense to have a little bit of cover on the iPhone and the, the hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of technical equipment we all walk around with these days. Oh, yeah, that's true. I'll have some of that. You haven't sold them anything. They've bought from you. No, that's good. I and like that's, that. That's a huge difference uh, in the consumer's mind because yeah. when we want something, we, didn't, we don't require being sold to. We just go and buy it. So if you can point somebody towards something in a way that they then recognize the need for them to have it, buying from somebody is an awful lot easier than selling to them. Uh, that is a very good tip. I like that. <laughs> um, so your background, you, you mentioned a little bit ago about uh, your parents were working, uh, where was it in Grimsby? Hewitt's, Hewitt's Brewery, the original Grimsby Brewery. So that was about 50 years ago, was yeah. it? Yep. Yeah, I mean, they, well, my dad uh, left in 1967, uh, which was the year I was born. So that makes me 22 <laughs> uh, in my dreams. Um, and my mum, they met there. He was, the, he was a stock taker. Uh, for the brewery so he used to go to all the pubs that Hewitt's owned and, and take the stocks and then bring them back to uh, the brewery and my mum was what's called a comptometrist which which basically is a, a stock adder um, and had this <laughs> wonderful machine called a comptometer um, that basically and it was, a, it was like a modern day well sorry an, an old world um, uh, calculator of sorts like a like a computerized abacus almost it was so old-fashioned but it was still electric um, and would sit and add up these stocks so you could say at the end of that process that the white heart in Grimsby had got x amount of pounds worth of stock on the premises and that's how they met um, but my dad was one of those wonderful people that that, that there's, there's a word that they use now which I'm never that comfortable with which is entrepreneur why well, hold on why not why am I not comfortable with it yeah it doesn't make any sense why is uh, that? Well, <laughs> do you speak French uh, no, not really. I did it at school, but okay. I couldn't say so I school speak French. It. Well, me too. So, so, but if you look at the the word entrepreneur, it's actually two words. Um, entre in French means between, and preneur means taker. So, if you're an entrepreneur, you're a between taker. Okay. You got any idea what that means? Well, I would hazard a guess that it meant between the transaction of the customer and your employees doing the work you're taking a cut oh you see that's a nice description i like that nobody's ever said that to me before so well done you win, <laughs> you win the prize for that but it still doesn't really make sense i mean i guess this is where french or other languages translated back into english literally don't don't mm. often make sense there's so many so i redefined it i did a speech about it called risque preneur which was risk taker and my dad was a, definitely a risk taker yeah 
Um, and I used a lovely line that I stole from somebody, so I'm not going to take credit for it, that, that a risk taker is somebody that jumps off a cliff and tries to build a plane on the way down. <laughs> and that was that was my dad. As it turned out, I didn't realize this. You, you know, when you're a child, your dad is who who you think he is, not who he actually is. Um, and he was a classic risk taker in the sense that he opened the areas. The Grimsby's first independent off license was opened by my dad in 1967 uh, to sell wine to people that didn't drink wine. Now that's quite risky uh, yeah. when you think about it. But somehow through all of that, he managed to find a way to open six more of those independent off licenses oh, wow. and through to the 60s 70s 80s um i grew up as a child of off license family drink all the colored drinks in the world were in our drinks cabinet um it was fantastic um you know that was that was my education was was learning all about the world of alcohol <laughs> um, and what what age did you Kind of get involved in the family business? Uh, properly, well, I guess as a, as a spotty teenager earning nothing and being made to unload lorries, uh, you know, sort of 13, 14. But, but um, what happened rather interestingly, as it turns out, uh, was that my dad sent me off when I left school, left school at 16. Didn't do A-levels, didn't do university. Um, got sent off to work in a variety of connected businesses to the drinks trade. So I had a year working in a vineyard. I had a year working at Forrester Boyd Accountants. I had uh, some time in London working in a whiskey merchants. I had some time working in an Italian wine shippers. I was a sales rep. I was lots of things that, as it turned out, was everything that I would ever have to deal with in the business. I then had done their job. So my MBA, my degree course, was actually learning how to be in the drinks business. Wow. So your so your dad facilitated those roles. I resented it like wow. you wouldn't believe because I didn't see the benefit. No, I mean that's a amazing foresight. And and I genuinely it was like, oh, really? Do I have to yeah. what I've got to go and live in Germany? I don't want to live in Germany. Why you know, in the most beautiful vineyard imaginable by the way. Um and and so yeah, my my secondary education was in that world. Um That sounds great. Uh, it was, as you know, hindsight being the wonderful thing, it's been like school yeah. was amazing apart from all the, you know, bits that you don't like. Um, so, yeah, and I, you know, I'm very sad that I don't get the opportunity to say thank you now because I've worked out the value of it now. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, my dad died uh, 20 years ago um, and I, he never saw me do what I now do for a living. He would have been utterly gobsmacked at, at what I now uh, do for a living. But the skills that those, educational jobs taught me were the sum of the part that I now spend my life doing and trotting out anecdotes from the drinks business that in you know in a way that tells a story um, was what that's where I learned it which of those jobs did you like the most Ooh, good question the most memorable was working in a whiskey merchants in Soho in London uh, number three Greek Street uh, at a time when Soho was still Soho um, and surrounded by just the most unbelievable characters. Um, we, we worked opposite a lady who worked in the flat, shall we say, opposite, uh, who was known locally as Electric Alice. <laughs> uh, she was quite the character. We were next door to a pub called the Pillars of Hercules, which is still there. Um, and it was, it was London at its best because it was like local London. It w you could relate to it coming from a small town like Grimsby because it had a small town feeling Soho still does actually have that sort of feeling London is a series of places rather than a city 
um, and Soho at that time in the I was 21 so gosh uh, 68 late 80s um, was quite different to it is now but much more vibrant much more exciting um, you didn't really know what you were going to get so one you know I'll give you an example this shop and it was just a retail shop selling malt whiskey I'd sold malt whiskey to Michael Caine who just wandered in to buy some malt whiskey huh. um, and it's like Okay, you're Michael Caine. So you, you knew who he was. Yeah, he didn't. He get starstruck. No, <laughs> well, you, it's so you don't get starstruck, I suppose, because it's like, oh wow, okay, you're okay, right? Uh, how can I help? Um, you know, and so it's the retail training, if you like, that you have from dealing. This was the lesson that the, the most overriding, valuable lesson that I think my father ever taught me was to deal with everybody you meet the same, whether it's the chairman of a company or whether it's the tea boy. He said, because you never know when you might need to buy a company. And you never know when you'd like a cup of tea. <laughs> but if you're the same with everybody, then they will be the same with you as a result. Yep, you never know when the tea boy is going to own the company. There we are. Mm. Um, you know, so yeah, he was a. Uh, I didn't give him the credit as for the wisdom that it turns out he was. He sounds like a very smart guy. He was a very smart guy, and and one of the things that I love, um, and Grimsby, as you know, is a big village rather than a small town. One of the things I love is the number of people that still remember my dad fondly. And, and, you know, and if, if nothing else in life, if success is one thing, it's being remembered fondly because you've made an impact on those people. Um, and, that, and then everything else is noise. But when people say, oh, I knew your dad, what a great guy, that's the best compliment you can have. Mm. Yeah, I agree. A lot of um, entrepreneurs, you know, very successful people, multimillionaires, they now all start to seem to say legacy is the thing that they're, mm. they're chasing after now. Mm. It's not so much... The islands and the yachts, it's legacy. They're trying to put something in history where they're remembered for the right reasons. Um, I mean, so also I said this to, to, I can't remember where I was, but I said this to, to um, a bunch of people that for me, success is the number of people stood around the hole in the ground when they put you in it. Yeah. And that's it. Because everything else is pointless. It's, it's not easy. It's nice pointless, but it's, you know, it is genuinely just pointless. It's, it's family, it's friends. I know that sounds trite, but it really is just that. Um, you know, and if you get that bit right, then you are as successful as it's possible to be. Yeah, <clears throat> there's been a few funerals I've been to. Luckily, not many, but um, there was someone I knew locally to Grimsby. Was he was loved? He was you know well well connected. Loads of people, and they couldn't fit mm. everybody in the. Mm. Um, oh, that's the, the goal, isn't it? The overflow tent. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's what he. That's what that's, he had. Yeah, he yeah. was so well liked. Um, such a nice guy, uh, and I I didn't get. I didn't really spend enough time mm. with him. It was a, he's a one of my late uh, my, one of my um, aunties. Mm. I met him very very late in her life, but basically I think became the love of her life. Mm. Um, but just one of those one of those shame yeah. uh, things that became a bit of a shame because it was so late and they they only got five or ten years together. Yeah yeah yeah. But um, which one of the jobs was the worst job then? If that was the best one. Well, the hardest was definitely working in the vineyard. So that where I was um, situated was the second steepest vineyards in Europe. Where are they? Uh, and northern Germany on the River Moselle um, in a little town called Cockham, um, which was hilarious because around the corner from that town was the largest U.S. Air Force base in Germany at the time. So the town was entirely populated by U.S. Air Force servicemen who knew how to have a good time. Um, and uh, but if you can imagine picking grapes on a on a vineyard that's almost vertical, and you had on your back it was like a um, if, if you imagine a rucksack that's that's like a dustbin, 
yeah, so a dustbin on, on straps, really. Yeah. Uh, and as you picked, you filled. And of course, as you filled, it got heavier. And, and then you realized that you had to go down to take the grapes back down to the bottom of, of the uh, slope to be emptied into the uh, lorries to take back to be pressed. Walking down slate-covered steep hill with 70 kilos of grapes on your back that wants to go past you. Yeah. <laughs> and that was that was a treat. You have a um, few falls. Uh, I, I, there was a moment where you think, okay, well, this is where this is how we die. Yeah. Uh, you know, I should be found buried under a, a mound of grapes, which is quite ironic as it turns out uh, in, in the sense of my business life. But um, uh, yeah, so that was probably the hardest uh, job, the worst um, probably, and, and they're, they're probably going to listen to this, aren't they? Forrester Boyd. <laughs> My God, is accountancy boring. Yeah. Um, so not not the company, just the, the No, not the, the company. The people were lovely, and I still, I'm still in touch with some of the people, actually. They, they genuinely were lovely, but, uh, and I guess the skill, the accountancy skill is a good skill to have, and it did stand me in good stead. Um, but, dull. Wow. Yeah, so that, sorry, Forrester Boyd, if you're listening. <laughs> I think people know accountancy's it can be a little bit of a dry topic. I think they they struggle the hardest uh, when trying to market like any accountancy practice, yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. be different and creative, but talk about taxation and VAT and all the. It's not sexy. Not is it, really. really. No. Um, it's a hard th- and again probably there probably is a story in there, especially with um, Forrester Boys, an old yeah company. They must have well, this lots was, of this history. was actually pre Foresters. It was a firm called Kermans. Um, who was subsumed by Foresters somewhere along the line, and it, it was in New Street in Grimsby opposite, and you know the little street in between the library and uh, the town hall? Yeah. Um, so down there. Um, so it was a bit like uh, something out of, um, what's his name, Scrooge, uh, Bob Cratchit. You know, it was all, all a little bit Dickensian, shall we say. Um, but, uh, but as it turned out, a really good lesson, um, you know, because I then ran my own business for 30 years and needed some accountancy skills. Uh, so on that basis, it was a useful Again, back to the degree course. That was that was practical learning um, that I would never have had. Um, I think it's else. a great idea. Turns that out kind it was of going out, doing it in you mm-hmm. know real situations, yeah. not ju- not just textbook. Yeah. yeah. So, well, how many years did you do? Did that span you you out learning your trade? Uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, probably three years, I would say. And yeah. then um, I was living and working in London. Um, but didn't really. I wasn't a fan of London. London wasn't as good as it is now. Then um, it was. You know, it, there were some nice places. Don't get me wrong. But but I I didn't embrace London living. Um, and you know, I was home every weekend. That was that. You know, if you're if you're in London and the first thing you want to do on a Friday is come home, then that's how much you're enjoying it. And in the end, it was like, do you know what? I'm I, I don't want to do this anymore. And at that point, my father said, right. In which case, you are ready to come back and do this. Um, and he installed me in the family business um, and we set about falling out on a regular basis about strategy from there <laughs> it was all, it was the classic fathers and sons thing oh, you know I did what all sons do to all fathers which is tell him where he's going wrong and he did what all fathers do to sons and say well when it's yours you can do as you like <laughs> yeah so that conversation would be a lot very familiar to anybody listening that's ever worked in a family business um, but you know, ultimately, we we had some fantastic debates, shall we say, about what the future should look like in terms of the business. Um, but actually, events were dictating that more than we could anyway, um, because the world we were in and the world we were operating in from a business perspective was changing around us uh, with the arrival of the supermarkets, uh, which of course, for anybody listening that doesn't remember, um, you know, there didn't used to be Tesco. 
um, you know, and then there was, and then it all changed. Um, so, and I do credit them to a certain extent with helping my business along because they did introduce wine to the masses. It used, it, you're too young to remember, but it did used to be a luxury product. Wine was a thing that you had on your birthday. Now it's a thing that you have on Monday. Yeah. Just cause, uh, you know, it was a luxury item. It is hard to believe because you walk down Tesco's aisle and uh, it had, you know, it is unbelievable how much choice and types of wine and... You have to imagine a time before Tesco's and before Tesco's knew about wine. And, and our single advantage at that point was knowledge. Knowledge was still the power. The, the wine industry is still one of those wonderful mystery markets where people defer to the expert as they believe them to be, as the one-eyed man in the Valley of the Blind. Um, and actually, the only expert you can ever be is of your own palate, and then everything else is opinion. But somehow, an opinion from a wine merchant carries more weight. So you know, and I still get it to this day. I joke about this that my friend, you know, we go out for dinner with friends. They say, "Well, you choose the wine, Rich. You know what you're doing." Brilliant. So I choose the wine that I like, yeah. and then everybody else chips in to pay for it. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. Um, That's brilliant. So, um, you know, it's 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 one of those one of those industries that still has a veil of secrecy around it that people aren't prepared to try and peel back in case they look stupid while doing it. It's the reason that there are numbers on a wine list, you know. Did you know that? Well, no. Uh, so the reason they number wine lists is, is to stop us from having to pronounce things badly and therefore embarrassing ourselves in the lovely British way that we hate to do. So you can confidently say, I'll have a bottle of the number three, please, because you can't pronounce peanut Grigio or whatever it is that you wish to choose for that... Uh, particular event there uh, there's some memes online of, of people who uh, yeah they, they get very what seem like well-known names very wrong for mm. the first time and mm. it's quite hilarious but then I think everybody's done it oh totally I um, uh, I'm I'm not a wine drinker so whenever we go out I always defer to the wife who has tried more wine and does does like it I always say to her, it's just Bernie grapes just it's either sour <laughs> or it's Bernie it doesn't really <laughs> matter to me um, what's your tipple then what would you so do? I'm I've never really been much of a drinker. Had to force beer and ale down me mm. um, when I was younger. But I discovered cider was quite sweet and, oh. you know, apple juicy. So I quite liked that. That was easy. Um, and then as I got older, I kind of transi transitioned into shorts. So yeah. vodka and whiskey. Never really liked whiskey or bourbon, but I like rum. Okay. And from there... Uh, once you say to someone, oh, I like something, then every birthday and every Christmas you That's get gifts. You so get. now I have a collection of all these different rums and it's great. Um, so I have kind of gone down that route and, I, and, and my taste buds have really kicked in and I yeah. can't, I've got a palette now. I can say, right, that's this rum. I like okay. this one. I can t I almost do, you know, where they sniff the wine and they say, oh, I can smell um, earthy tones and, and kind of do that with rum and people go, no, that rum all tastes the same. It's just, it's terrible. But, well, this is the thing. I mean, everybody gets something different, and so there is no there is no truth. It's no. just your truth. You know, we could sit. I mean, you're you know, we're sitting here having a coffee. You've got it with milk. I've got it black. So we both like coffee, but we like it slightly differently. Um, you know, so there is. You know, that's my perfect. That's your perfect. So we're both correct. So therefore, there is no wrong. And this is where people go wrong. I think in 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 the sense that they're looking for certainty where it doesn't exist. Um, and and to a certain extent, it's a process of elimination, which is why some people never find their perfect tipple. Um, if you're lucky and you find something that you like and then you can deviate from it slightly to find things that may lead on to. This is what I always try to do in the wine business was 
establish what somebody's comfortable with and then see where you can take them from there that they wouldn't be prepared to go themselves there's a there's an old sort of um I, I, the maths uh, uh, i've forgotten the maths now but but the cost of a bottle of wine was pretty fixed in the sense that there was the glass bottle obviously there was the, the label there was the cork there was the the foil that went over the cork there was the back label and then there was the tax that you had to pay to the government so you were you let's let's make it easy let's say it was four pounds before you got to the juice okay so you had to pay four pounds so after that every pound more is get you're getting better wine so anybody that says they buy wine for three pound 99 hasn't bought anything because they've only bought the packaging and the, and therefore the juice is worthless yeah so my my view was always right well if you've got a you know your risk is four quid so five quid you're really only risking a pound does that make sense? Yep. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, you could take people along from that in sort of e e easy, sort of sequential steps. You know, another fifty p, and you can, you know, just think how much more wine you're getting proportionally uh, to the to the cost of what you're getting. You know, so it's, and then you, people say, oh, I see. So this isn't quite as difficult as I thought it was going to be, and then you can move them along. So it's 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 an interesting sort of notion, uh, the 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 drink itself, because. People are still, to this day, uncomfortable with the idea of asking for help for fear of showing up that they may not know something. And that's the British, I'm afraid. Don't yeah. You don't find that anywhere else in the world. It's very British. <laughs> totally. Always makes me laugh when they say the British are reserved, and yet we've invaded every country we've ever found. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I did get into a good bottle of wine recently. I can't remember the name of it. I just remember we were in Tesco and I needed to do some cooking and on the ingredients list was white wine. Okay. And I went and bottom shelf, went right, five quid, bit of a bargain. I went, it's got an old style label on it. Oh, it must be okay. <laughs> and I actually got it home. It was really nice. Okay. And Kirsty went, how much was this wine? Was this like 15, 10 pounds? No, five quid. Hmm. But the moment I said it was five quid to her, I put her eyebrows raised and perception changed. Well, there we are. Perception so is, is nine tenths of it, isn't my it? My question to you hmm. is, are there cheap very middle of the road wines that people just stick a high price tag on just to make it seem like a good wine it's a very good question and and i'm not going to answer it directly but what i will what i will say is i i would doubt that i would hope to doubt that because that to me feels a bit nefarious um you know from a, a um a business perspective but what's rather interestingly to flip your question is the way that people respond to higher price things. They imagine that they're better. Mm. So we used to do wine tastings quite regularly when I had the wine business, and and people would you know would would regularly get sort of a hundred people to come to various events, and you give them the booklet as they arrive. That these are the wines that we've got on, and they'd look through it. Oh, there's the most expensive. Let's go and try that mm. and see how much better it is than the other ones. Forgetting that it's their own palate that is the arbiter of whether it's good or not, not the price. So the, the, typically the price of wine is connected to boring stuff like economies of scale. It's more expensive because they can't make enough of it to make it cheaper. It doesn't make it better. Okay. It just makes it scarcer. Or more scarce. Scarcer. You know what I mean. Yep. Um, less available. Um, so you can't put a direct quantification between quality and price. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm with you, yeah. But I would be really disappointed if somebody made a four-pound wine and charged 40 quid for it just to see what would happen. But you would find people buying it. Mm. No, that's, yeah, that's what I think. I mean, I've, I've you know, I've, uh, how can I say this politely? Um, 
helped people to make a decision over the years by sort of um, putting some fog in front of them. Uh, in other words, an, a wine that they don't like the look of. People buy with their eyes. Well, the label's a big part of it. And this is why, well, this, is, this is my point. So if you have something that doesn't look particularly nice, most people will shy away from it. Whereas if you have something that looks really nice, it could be rubbish because it looks nice. It's more enticing. But then, of course, you can, you can de-risk all of that by pouring it into a decanter and letting people actually try the juice and forgetting what they've seen or what they've heard or what they've spent. Try that, see what you think. Yeah. Is the classic way of finding out whether you like it or not. And then it might be four quid, it might be 400 quid, doesn't really matter. But if you like it, it's a good wine. Better if it's cheaper and you like it. If you're lucky. Um, yeah. you know, but it is really only about whether you like it. And, that's, and, that, and as I say, we could open a bottle now and you love it and I hate it and we're both right. Yeah. It must have been hard selling wine. If Did you always open a bottle and let people taste it? Or was it a case of sometimes there was no taste involved and you just had to try and sell well, it blind? More times than not, no taste, actually. Um, but I think that was where the, the position of the wine merchant actually becomes elevated because there's trust. You know, And it, it is one of those wonderful businesses that still has a trusting relationship between seller and merchant and buyer. And it's, I guess it's respect for the knowledge and the expertise and the, the length of time that you've been doing it. You must know what you're doing because, you know, it's, it, it became a reasonable size business. When I took over from my dad in, uh, gosh, 99, I think it was, um, he had some health problems and, and um, retired, really. And I took over from him and instantly shut the off-license business because it was going nowhere and we were getting killed from all sides, not only by the supermarkets, but also at that time by the booze cruisers. This was around the time of, of the... Remember the booze cruisers? No, what was <laughs> that? Looking at me like I'm <laughs> talking out. I was, so about, I was, was about 13. Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> none taken. So this was um, uh, really the deregulation of the ability to go to the continent and buy drink duty-free and bring it back. Oh, okay. Um, and some people took that to the extreme and brought a lot back and then sold it to people. Oh, I do remember without, people without taking weekends, right. hiring so a van. and They were known as booze cruisers. Ah, okay. And, and so as a business that was legitimately paying its duty and its taxes in this country, couldn't compete. You know, if, if, you're, if you're standing next to me with a case of lager for £10 and I'm trying to sell someone to somebody for 15 who are they going to buy from? If it's the same lager, yeah. There we are. So, you know, so we were being squeezed by, from both sides in terms of the retailing of alcohol. So my view um, as, a, as a, you know, a bold... Um, riskpreneur uh, was get out of it uh, and get into something where the knowledge had more value than the product um, so I closed what was then I think four shops three or four shops in Grimsby um, just stopped doing it um, picked up the stock uh, and went actually went to work from home for a while um, purely with wine I didn't I stopped all the beer soft drinks all, all the associated stuff that you would find in an off license I stopped doing because that had become commoditized and, and anytime that happens you're just trading on price and it's pointless but wine still had some added value in it um, and I worked from home for a while and then um, this is how the story goes uh, I'm not entirely sure whether it's true but it's a great story um, there was at Haltonley Clay uh, a series of little um, business units next to the Jug and Bottle pub, one of which was called the Pine Warehouse because it sold pine furniture. But it was closing or moving, um, and I wanted the space. So I went to see my bank manager and said, can you lend me the money to buy a W so I can take the P off pine and put the W in? And then we've got ourselves the Wine Warehouse. 
and he thought that was quite a cute idea so he lent me the money for a W and we took the lease on this unit and opened up what was then I guess this is history repeating itself the first sort of majestic style wine warehouse type business in the area um, and all we sold was wine and knowledge um, and people came you know that was gosh 2002 so really between 2002 and 2010 very successful growing business because as people got more used to drinking and buying wine they wanted to feel as though they were well informed in doing so and to a certain extent that's what our business was as it turns out we were selling knowledge that had a product attached to it the downside of that as it turned out was every time you give somebody knowledge they need you a little less and I didn't spot that and and so actually the business to a certain extent was tapering um, but I didn't realize it uh, and I wouldn't say until it was too late but there was a point where you go hmm this isn't going anywhere near as well as it should be why not because people were taking that knowledge and then going and buying on price so they they use you to find out what they liked and then find it cheaper also a little bit although it didn't feel like that i think that was just a happenstance you yeah. know I, I, i'm sure there were some people that a bit like you you know you go and find what you want to buy and then find the cheapest price on the internet this is pre-internet um really. so you didn't you didn't uh get in involved in e-commerce or anything I, I not no not in a way that was really um useful uh, it was a bit too soon um you know and the, and the costs were associated with e-commerce for a small business were too too big a price for you to pay you didn't want to spend 15 pounds just on delivery for example you know and that uh, back in those days without the scale of volume of boxes you couldn't get the price in order for me to send it to you at, at the price that you were prepared to pay for it so it was very much a local sort of you know local trade uh, restaurant and hotel trade that we supplied um across lincolnshire you know we went we went a fair way over the river um, into Nottinghamshire, so it was a you know it was n over a million pound turnover business. So you oh, know wow. it, it was certainly big enough, um, you know. But it it plateaued, um, and then the margin started to drop away because you were having to compete with your competitors, obviously, um, and we needed to do something else. And, and what did you do after that business? Morphed into into the next bit of the of the story, really, um, which was gift. Turn a turn a product from a consumable into a giftable, and you instantly add value back into it, um, because to a certain extent, as human beings, we tend to buy gifts based on how much we like somebody, <laughs> and, and attach a value to that how much, yeah, and then buy that. And if we can make it look as though it's more expensive than we've actually spent, hoorah! Yeah, that that is a I've seen that happen many times. You know, you talk to people. Oh, um, it's so and so's birthday. How much should we spend? How much do we like? Yeah, them? That we like them twenty pounds. Yeah, <laughs> what can we get for that that looks as though it might have cost thirty, um, but we can arrive and feel the warm glow of satisfaction knowing that we've saved some money but delivered perceived value. Yep, and that's the gift business. Whereas the the wine business and the really the consumer goods business is bought on price. Uh, you know, because I, I want to buy a jar of marmite, but I'm not spending ten quid on it. I want to find somebody that'll sell it to me for three quid, please. Um, you know, and that's. That's a different part of the head. So the gift business, being the other part of the head, was there to be utilised. And you just instantly switched it from one to the other? Or? Well, we kind of been doing it. I mean, it was one of those lovely things where it crept up on me. And, and I didn't, you know, for years and years and years, my dad's time, back all the way back in the day, companies have always bought other companies gifts at Christmas as a, a um, you know, thanks for your trade this year, thanks for your custom, thanks for your whatever. Um, happy Christmas, here's a drink on us, that kind of thing. And it was the old-fashioned bottle of red and bottle of white in a carry pack that arrived at your office the week before Christmas. 
um, and then you came back in January um, to a room full of boxes that you'd no idea who they were from and you'd no idea what they were for but it's booze so you know at the very least it had some value but to my mind the value of that gift was lost at the point of purchase because there was no thought attached to it so the change in my mind and, the, and this is where the whole story flips on its head was to create personalized labels so that at the very least when I opened that box in that box was a bottle of wine that had my name on it and maybe your name on it or certainly your company's name on it and give some resonance and some value to the gift and therefore demonstrate some thought because really that's what personalized stuff does it demonstrates that you've spent a little bit more time on me than the person that's just bought a bottle of Lanson or Verve Clico or whatever you've actually gone to the trouble or so it appears uh, to you know create something this is how Moonpig started of course yeah, very successful. Oh, yeah, but it started by Nick Jenkins, who was the founder, buying birthday cards from Clinton's and tipexing out the names that were written on the cards and writing yours in. So the first personalised card was done by hand. God, that must have been pretty tiresome doing that all the time. He made 100 million quid out of um, doing that. Maybe worth so it then. <laughs> <laughs> it paid off in the end. Yeah, he sold it for quite a lot. And I think it's still really successful. And they transitioned into all sorts of other gifts. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Things yeah. You can but but the really what they're doing, and this is where you know, my, my journey through the world of personalization was, was recognizing the value that we put on seeing our name on something that we wish it to be seen on, which is right back to those days at the seaside when you went looking for a key ring. You know, it's, it, again, talking about storytelling being pre-programmed into us, so is the, wow, that's got my name on it bit. Uh, and, and if you can apply that to the product that you wish it to be on, you've just doubled the value. Yeah, I, I know um, I know a local entrepreneur based in Lincoln who's who's really gone down the custom gift route. Is that Mr. McLaren? It is, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, Stuart's a very clever guy, and I mm. think he's seen this. Uh, got some really great deals with some, you know, yeah. not naff stuff, like no. really the football brands. I think there's some Disney stuff in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But personalize that mm. and... What parent will not buy their kid personalized, I don't know, Toy Story bedding yep. with their name on it? So it's soft parent syndrome yep. or soft grandparent syndrome. Easiest people uh, to sell to. Absolutely. Um, but it has to still be, I think, executed well. Yep. Product has to be good. Um, the, the brand, I think, has to be recognizable, iconic if you can, because everybody wishes to be associated with or a lot of people wish to be associated with. Um, I remember the first conversation I ever had with a customer about a personalized label for champagne. And he said, oh, that's a bit naff. And I said, yeah, it's a bit like um, personalized number plates that I notice you've got. <laughs> and he went, oh, fair point. Touché. Yeah, I see, I see what you mean. And it's only naff if it's done badly. Uh, if it's done well, then actually it can be really valuable uh, to not only the recipient, but also then the buyer. And this is where the value then goes up again, because you're going to see that somebody spent a little bit more time, not necessarily more money, but just a little bit more time on you surely that's got more recognition value in a business environment than somebody that goes, uh, gives their secretary 100 quid and says, go to Tesco and buy the cheapest one. You kind of give it out to all of our customers. Thanks. Thanks for your trade this year. <laughs> yeah, it's a great idea. So did that, um, you said the business was in a bit of a lull. Yep. Did that transform it? Totally. Yeah. Changed everything um, and, and really set about a, a chain of events that lead me to do what I do today. Actually, it's probably more directly linked that moment in time which was around about 2007 so gosh 12 years ago has probably had more to do with what i do now than than anything that i've ever done previously 
to that ironically because the personalization I don't like to call it a trend because it's been around forever um, what's changed is digital printing uh, which has enabled people really from a desktop perspective to, to create their own you know Stuart started really in a very small room with, a, with one printer and, and has gone on to do what he's doing now um, but we started much the same creating really literally soaking labels off bottles and replacing them with personalized labels uh, because nobody would make us bottles with no labels on they, they, they didn't get it the, the, the conventional drinks business went why would you want to do that and, and well to double the value of it was you know the, the, we were taking 15 pound bottles of champagne and making 30 pound gifts just by taking a label off and putting a label on now that label still looked as though it belonged to the bottle to me that the context of it was hugely important but instead of it being Verve Clico it was your name and then it, that became your product and the sense of ownership that you get from that is, is undoubtedly provable and then I went to knock on the door of Moonpick um, around about 2009 and said you should be doing personalised champagne uh, in fact it started with an email actually I'm forgetting my own story now it started with an email because I, I you know the contact us page that you always get on a website yep. so I, I went on to Moonpig's website and uh, sent them an email and said I've just bought one of your lovely birthday cards for my wife and I wanted to buy her a bottle of personalised champagne but I noticed you didn't sell it would you like to uh, and within nine minutes I got a response from their customer services interesting tell us more I went to see them took a bottle of champagne in with me with their name on it um, thought they thought it was the best thing since sliced bread they created a, an alcohol gift category to be able to sell personalised champagne and within a year we'd sold them a million pounds of champagne <laughs> and we're back in the game so you know but still actually ironically using the knowledge and the supply chain that the old wine business all the way back to my dad was still using I was still using the same suppliers but strangely enough telling an old story in a new way and that was that was the catalyst for everything that came after that really uh, which was quite fun so did you sell the business or are you still still involved with it no it was it was no I, I'm not involved in it I sold the business in 20 where are we now 2016 okay so just to f very quickly fill in the, the gap between there and then um, because we supplied so many places like Moonpig and on the high street and John Lewis and Interflora and all the gift every, anywhere you could buy a gift from the, the alcohol that you could buy it from um, came from us and then I got one of those lovely um, moment in the in memory emails one day sitting on a train uh, on my way to London and an email dropped in to my inbox saying would you be interested in partnering Coca-Cola in the share a Coke campaign and you think really me <laughs> Um, so I replied quite quickly uh, saying yes please um, and long story short we ended up delivering the share of coke campaign across Europe in 2014 sold one and a half million bottles of personalised coke uh, do you remember those? With the yeah yeah I, the I, remember, I remember getting some yeah. searching high and low for your name was like a Saturday afternoon <laughs> so we did that um, so, ha so hold on how, how did you go from <laughs> the wine bottles to coke bottles because they look I asked this question to them actually because I you know I sat in their office their headquarters in London and 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 genuinely said why me and they said well because we looked on the internet and everybody that was shipping glass bottles with personalized labels on was being supplied by you so we can't do that we can do a million bottles but we can't do one you know, they, they, they weren't capable of scaling oh, down okay. their operation to the individual 
Right, I'm with uh, you. And the first year, I don't know whether you remember, but the first year of the Share a Coke campaign was they'd put bottles into stores with a certain amount of names on, yeah. ho- hoping that you'd A, have that name and B, find your own. And actually, it annoyed more people than it pleased but when they couldn't. It was so annoying. People were getting really irate. I mean, surely, common sense that why you can't have Siobhan or something on a Coke bottle, it's not going to be... Well, this was the problem. And, and, you know, if you think about this, and I've said this at conferences before, that if your marketing plan is to annoy 90% of your customers, then well done. Yeah. Uh, because that's exactly what it did. And, and in fact, when I engaged with them, they were really looking around for the solution to that because they recognized that they'd done the very opposite of what they intended. Yeah. Um, and the solution was quite simple, which was to build a website called mycocacola.com and allow you, the consumer, to come onto that website and type in your own name. So that was your idea? That was my idea. Oh, Richard, you're a genius. <laughs> Not really. It was a very simple well, it's, it's, solution. It is, but I remember using that and thinking, Gene, this is absolute genius. One, all the marketing data they're getting on what they're collecting. Because um, I think you have to put in some of your other details that they could then track. It was quite the data harvest. Yeah. And then... Uh, was it the coat? Yeah, the coat got delivered, didn't yep. it? It was posted to it, yeah. Yeah, that was all done from Louth. Oh, now this, I don't remember seeing this in any press. This should have been a... a uh, no, there was a little bit local because I, yeah, I have a very good relationship with my good friend Dave Leister at the uh, Telegraph and he, he did a little bit about it. Um, but uh, ultimately, it wasn't... Um, wasn't particularly shouted about, no. uh, you know. In fact, Coke could have shouted about it, uh, shouted about it more uh, than they did. We sold 1.6 million bottles of Coke in three months, which was pretty good going. But uh, but actually, we could have done an awful lot more had they told the people that couldn't find the bottle that the solution was to go to the website. So we found, you know, people found it and used it and were very happy as a result. Um, but you know, if they told, if they told as many people as they told that they couldn't have a bottle, that they could. Yeah. Then that 1.6 could have been, you know, 16 million, could have been 160 million. Um, you know, who knows? But it is what it is. Um, but the irony for me now, uh, because when that campaign finished uh, and it stopped, you know, there was no long tail. It was like, it's on for three months and then it's not on. Um, and you go, no, 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 keep it on. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we've moved on. I then did the um, campaign for Marmite. I don't know if you remember that person yep. was Marmite Giles. That sadly was me. Apologies if you hate Marmite. <laughs> um, we did something with McVitie's with Jaffa Cakes, uh, which didn't work uh, because the McVitie's didn't put any marketing behind it. Um, so nobody knew that you could buy your own box of Jaffa Cakes, uh, which was a shame because I, I saw this through the eyes of, would you like to see your name on an iconic brand so that you could go, look, I've got this. And yep. people go, wow, where did you get that from? That was that was my simplistic marketing plan. No, it, um, I will um, testify when that Coke campaign came out, um, our staff would have the Coke bottles with their names, if they had a couple of them, lined up on their desk, yep. empty. So they drank the bottle, they kept it on their desk, and it was there for months. Interesting. Um, which is weird because it's, and it's a keepsake. Pop. It's pop, but well, they've kept it. But it isn't, you see. And this is where it's interesting because what it is is a gift that happens to be made of a bottle of Coke. Yeah. And that's, that's <clears> a hugely different... But we're back to how much do I like you. Yeah. It's a hugely different pur- purchase. The irony is actually your staff are one of the very few people that actually opened them and drunk them. Most people's are still intact. So it wasn't bought as a drink. Yeah. I mean, apart from anything else, it was three times more money. Um, but it was bought because you wanted a bottle of Coke with your name in it. The keepsake value and the memento value of that and back to the key rings from the seaside when we were kids. Yep. Um, but it only really relates when it's on something that you wish it to be on. Yeah. Uh, Marmite is not one that I would get. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> strange enough, Marmite was probably as as successful, although it, f- it, it failed because Marmite couldn't keep up with demand. 
what they failed to understand was the great British sense of humour, which that if I knew you didn't like Marmite, I'm so going to buy you a jar with your name on it. Yep. They missed that. So there was a, we had a forecast, and this was Christmas 2015, of 150,000 jars that we would sell in the eight weeks up to Christmas. And we sold them in the first eight days because of people like me buying you one just to take the proverbial. Um, and it was a cheap, easy little four ninety nine Secret Santa type, you know, gift. Um, so we could have sold a million jars of Marmite, but they couldn't make enough. There oh, what a what an opportunity they missed. There lies the irony. So um, um, I'm sure Toblerone did it as well. Yeah, Toblerone have just done it actually. Although I, I you know, I'm I'm, be- I'm becoming a bit of a personalization purist now. Um, what they did was print a sleeve. That they then put over a, a Toberone, which I don't think is the same thing. I, I, for me, I want my name to be on on my thing, not covering my thing. Yeah, um, that sounded wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, because that, to me, is where the truth. It becomes then a real representation of an iconic product, not just a one with a dress on it, or, or you know, that that didn't feel as good. Yeah, if you can take the normal thing off it. Exactly. Uh, not yeah. not quite as no. good. Did you see the Kit Kat one? But you could upload a picture. I did. Now, I was a little bit involved in it, but yeah. only a little bit. And and it's Grimsby Company that did yeah, it. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Uh, we were involved with them on a on a slightly different project. Right. And Chris, the MD, said, yeah, yeah, no, check Chris. these out. Yeah. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. What a good idea. And he went, um, here, these are like some of the first codes that are available. Yep. You should pretty much be guaranteed to win when you go on the website yes. and put the code in. And so brought brought them back, just enough for everyone on the team. They all went online. Yep. They all put the codes in. Everyone won, apart from my wife, which was <laughs> quite <laughs> Wasn't funny. the question, what is your name? <laughs> yeah. It was just uh, putting the code and then you said, yep, you're a winner. And then what you, had, what you could do is upload a picture. Now, the amount of people that uploaded pictures of them and their dogs or the family and stuff, all the team did it and they all got them back and mm. either gave them as a gift or kept them. And we have one, I'll show you on the way out, in the front room from that. And I got one of the whole team. So we have a laser red right. Kit Kat. And I often get asked by people, why Why have you got a Kit Kat yeah. in your office? It's been sat there for a couple years now. Yeah, probably not very edible. But it, that it's exactly what you said. Mm. It's It's worth more. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's a KitKat now? Like a quid. It's way, worth way more to me yeah, now yeah. because that probably will never happen again. Well, it won't happen for a long time. Well, what it is is a very iconic frame. Yes. Um, you know, and we are all avid collectors of photographs, which is why still to this day, nothing has replaced the value of photo, uh, which is why Instagram is so uh, popular as a social media, I think. Um, it's because, you know, the emotive value that sits in a, in a photograph transcends anything else. So if you can then attach that to something that you add equal value to, like a Kit Kat or a bottle of Coke or um, yeah anything uh, that that is means something to you, then you've just added value to it. And the, and the business world constantly is seeking to add value, and in some cases it can be giving your name away. Coke gave their name away to allow you to put yours on it, and the consequence was that their sales went up. It wasn't their reason, but that was their consequence. Their reason was to engage um, with teenagers, actually, ironically. Um, because they, they, I'm sure they'd read a statistic somewhere that said that 50% of the current crop of teenagers had never drunk Coke and they could see their business model sliding away. So they needed to say hello. Personalization is a device by which companies can say hello to consumers. I like that. That's a nice quote. <laughs> so after you'd done the personalization transformation, mm. you said that then changed. So now you're doing... I got asked to come to a conference in Windsor um, in 
uh, March 2016 to speak about the Coke campaign. And I told a story that really included all this, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today about how, um, you know, how I ended up doing the Coke campaign rather than just the nuts and bolts and the st stats and the boring stuff. Um, and spoke for about half an hour and somebody came up to me at the end and said, you should do that for a living. And I said, that's an interesting idea. And here I am three years later as a full-time public speaker. I, I'm just one of those weirdos that enjoys standing on a stage and telling stories. Probably something that most people are terrified. It's the number one doing. fear in the US. You'd think it be guns, but it's actually <laughs> it's actually public speaking. It's it's it, it. I suppose it's it's hard when you are fearful of it to, to understand how somebody can not be and vice versa. I don't get why people are so scared of it because ultimately we all speak in public, as in hello John, hello mate, how you doing? You stand in the pub. Stand in the restaurant, stand in the bus queue, stand wherever. We are all capable of speech, and yet somehow that elevation on a small stage in front of an audience strikes the fear of God into people so that they, their brain disconnects from their mouth. And when you ask most people what they're scared of, they say, forgetting what I'm going to say. And the irony of that is nobody knows what they're going to say, so how will they know that you've forgotten it? And unless you're quoting and reciting Shakespeare or something that everybody knows... How on earth am I going to know that you've gone wrong? Unless you go, um, uh, oh, oh, I've gone wrong. You, it, it's almost, you highlight your own <laughs> fear by doing it. So so you just, when you did, you were a natural then, you didn't have any training or... That sounds really grand and I don't mean it to sound that way, but it turns out that that was the thing that I probably was always very good at, but didn't recognize. Um, so no, no training, just... So up. no nerves before going on stage? No. And I don't know why. I genuinely don't know why because I promise you, you have to believe me and I'll, I'll bring my mother in as a witness. I was the shyest, shyest child no way. that you can imagine. And a little bit of me still is. That shy child is still in there somewhere. There are certain situations that I don't like. I'm not particularly fond of walking into a room full of people. But I don't mind standing on a stage in front of a room full of people because that's my choice. So it's a little bit, there's a bit of control freakery in there. Mm. Um, I was going to say maybe that's a control thing. Possibly, because uh, you know, I guess if I walk into a room full of people, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to get. Whereas I, when I walk out on a stage, um, I'm totally sure of what I'm going to get. Yeah. Um, and I described it to my daughter a few weeks ago because she's she's learning the the dark arts of the theatre um, and loves it. Um, and there is a moment when you stand on stage behind a curtain, before the curtain rises, and you are on your own. And that is your, you are totally and totally in control of the situation at that point. And then the curtain rises and you find out whether you were right or not. And that's, what's get, that's what makes it exciting. So yeah, it's, it's, and, and as a result, as I say, that, that, that little email that dropped into my inbox about Coke led me to tell that story that led me to stand on stages now all over the world, which is a real treat and doesn't feel like work. It's always good if it doesn't feel like work. It's a bonus. Yeah. So you... Where where and what do you speak on? So who are you speaking to and what are you speaking about? Is it the stories of like we've discussed already or is it more business acumen, business advice? It kind of varies on, on the event. I mean, the topic, I suppose, is, is really how do you engage with your consumer, your customer, um, and what's the best way to do that? And then, of course, I've got some very nice anecdotal evidence of how that can work. And, and as I've said before, if, you know, um, if you've played for England for five minutes, you're forever an England player. 
well, I'll always be the guy that did the share a coat campaign. So that's my badge of honor, if you like, which which you know sounds ridiculous in in one context that you know a self fizzy pop, but it was a a very successful iconic marketing campaign that is still a benchmark for an awful lot of brands. Um, I mean, I'm about to start something new in that world that I can't tell you about, sadly, um, oh. but I will. Um, you tease next time. Um, that that follows the same principle because brands have recognised. I think one thing that's changed in our life. Is the is the desire and the need for brands to talk to you as an individual rather than as a collective, and the internet has has totally created that change because they previously they just needed to know where you shopped, and then their customer was that shop. Now because they don't know where you're going to shop, actually you're way more important to them as an individual, and they didn't know how to engage with you. So sending you their product with your photo on it, why have you still got a KitKat? Yeah, it means more than just a normal kick. There we are. So that they've made an impression on you that mm. no amount of marketing dollars could have made or billboards or catalogs or discounts or anything. It's They've engaged with you directly uh, and as a result, you'll not forget it. That's the holy grail. And so I, I tend to speak, to answer your question, in and around that and how you can apply that logic to your own business. And whether you're selling flights for darts, I have no idea where that came into my head, um, <laughs> or um, it doesn't really matter. The principles are all boiled back. I did a speech last year, Mark Webb will tell you this actually, because he was horrified. In fact, I think he was terrified at what I was going to say, because he asked me to come and speak at the Humber Business Week last year, last summer at Forest Pines. The big small business event. The big small business event. And I followed Nikki Pattinson, mm. um, who who is probably the exact opposite of me in terms of her approach to speaking. So she had a huge amount of content that she rattled through at her wonderful pace and was very funny and swore a lot and, and was, was, was great. I had one slide and that slide had the letter C on it and I chose to speak about C words, but not that one. Um, and I started by saying, it's not that one. And if anybody's thinking that one, stop thinking that one because my mother's in the room. <laughs> um, unfortunately, everybody did what you just did, which is giggle. And, and I just talked about communication um, and uh, all of the, the wonderful cake, all the wonderful <laughs> words that begin with C that actually is the simple part of any business, which is just to communicate with your customer in a way that they can then relate to. I do remember that talk. I, I was. Yeah. I was right at the front. Excellent. After Nikki Patterson's very uh, heartfelt, yeah. emotional story. And then you came on with one slide. And for the whole way through, I was going, this guy can't be real. Like one slide <laughs> in a presentation. Never, ever seen anyone do that. Well, Mark, Mark said to me, uh, can you send me through your deck before your presentation? <laughs> before you can? I said, I can, but you'll be surprised. You'll not know what it is. And I'd, so I sent it and he went, what are you going to do, Rich? <laughs> and I went, do you know what, Mark? I don't know yet. I've got an idea that I'm going to try and see if the antidote to too much information is actually not enough, but then use that not enough to paint the right picture, which hopefully it did. You tell me, you were in the audience. Um, I couldn't remember, until you said, I couldn't remember the, it, what letter it was, <laughs> but I do remember the rough gist of what, what yeah. you talked about was. Here's a challenge for you then. Do, do your next presentation with no slides. Yeah, uh, it's been done, actually. Um, I think... Ultimately, you shouldn't rely on slides too much. I think they they help. They're a nice backdrop. They do. They're actually for me. They're more theatrical than anything else. You know, I tend to use pictures, not words. 
so the pictures can be random and you sat there thinking what the, what the hell is that all about but it doesn't matter what it's all about it's just like turning the page so you wouldn't advise uh, lots of bullet points and no. facts and figures and if I want to read your information send it to me yep. um, I can do that at home you know it's, it's it, tell me something I was at an event that I was actually speaking at probably the biggest one it wasn't that many people but for me it was the first big yep. one um, and a couple of speakers before me really really nice lady but she did exactly that the mm. presentation and she said and I'll let you read the slide and then just nothing yeah and everyone was sat there obviously reading at different paces and then she'd flip to the next thing and and I thought wow yeah and it's it was the world's worst book it, it was <laughs> it didn't help that it was also lots of percentages and facts mm. and I, I really liked what she was trying to say but the yeah, way in which she said it was almost put you off it, it you know it kind of put you to sleep a little bit yeah, so. yeah so which is back to what we were saying at the beginning about the value of storytelling if you really want to get those facts across find a way that people want to hear them that's what people t sorry that's what people tend to forget is that your speech is not the most important part what they hear is the most important part and if and you know and this is why you know you can you can apply this to music if a band is stood on a stage playing for itself they're not engaging with their audience so you you know it's as much it's a give and take total give and take and again i think probably doing some stuff in my um, you know, I've seen a band. I, th I told you that earlier on. That's you know, I've learnt how to engage a crowd um, and keep them engaged because uh, it's hard work winning a crowd, but it's even harder to, to keep them, um, especially when you've got a guitarist that keeps having to retune every thirty seconds. Um, yeah. So, so there's a there's a bit of stagecraft, I guess, I've learnt over the years that helps in the public speaking arena, um, and then you then you've got half a chance of your message being remembered. So have you got any top tips for anyone who either is speaking in front of um, an audience or could just be they've got a presentation at work? Breathe yeah. is always a good one. In and then out is and, and repeat and rinse and repeat on that one. Um, I think that the hardest thing to get over to people is to relax because they, they get so tense about the prospect of doing it that actually they then can't perform to their best. And that's the heart, you know, and then they go away and say, oh, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done this. The, the other side of that is when people do it and they feel as though they've done well and they come off completely adrenalized. I want to do it again. Um, you know, so there is a there's a perception, I think, that public speaking is some kind of dark art. And it really isn't. It's just speaking in public. And that's, you know, everybody's capable of that. Once you de once you demystify what it is. And most people go, well, I can do that. I do that now. You know, I, I do coaching in businesses for to help them get better at presenting uh, internally as well as externally. And you say to people, have you done public speaking before? No. Oh, okay. So what? what I, well, I do a briefing every morning to the, to the staff. How many staff? Oh, 40. Okay. So you do public speaking every morning. Oh, okay. Well, I hadn't seen it that way. Genuinely, most people in their life at some point do some talking. Mm. <laughs> um, it's just applying that principle to the broader audience it makes sense when you say it like that i think there's still a lot of people would be thinking god it's, it's not that easy for me maybe i'm afraid of heights so the people that go up to the climb mountains and and aren't afraid and i am why is that i don't like roller coasters i'm not a thrill seeker i have no adrenaline junkie sort of desire so that you know so i've got friends that throw themselves off the side of a cliff on a mountain bike and, and you know and then they think that i'm some kind of you know dark wizard because I can do public speaking. So. That is weird, isn't it? That mm. doesn't make any sense. Everybody's fear is in a different place. 
um, and and I love different things. Yeah. Mine, I have no fear about public speaking or standing in front of an audience. Just don't. Uh, and that's you know that's my good fortune because I can earn a living from it. Um, but I, you you asked me to uh, stand in a field with a horse. No thanks. I'm terrified of horses. Uh, you know. So so th- we all have our fears. They're just in different places. So have you got any favourite speakers that you've seen? Or, or even met? Well, uh, actually, probably the most recent that I heard is, is, is probably my most favourite, um, and certainly right now, and, and I'm about to see him speak again next month in, in Barcelona. There's a guy called Chris Berez Brown, who I would recommend you go and look up. Berez is B-A-R-E-Z, Berez Brown, double barreled. Um, uh, English, uh, he lives down in Sussex. And he has a business called Upping Your Elvis, uh, and it's I won't I won't spoil his thunder, but go and look him up. He is one of the most naturally gifted, non-motivational motivational speakers that I've ever seen because he doesn't start to try. The intent is not to motivate you, but that happens to be the consequence. Mm. And it's a very clever skill that because I think it's a it's a dangerous word or dangerous title, motivational speaker, because everybody imagines, oh God, you're going to be chest bumping and high-fiving and you know everybody's got to stand up and hug each other and you go no 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 no. if anybody says to me are you a motivational speaker my answer is no but if you end up motivated then what a wonderful happenstance i also think it's a british thing to not like motivational speakers probably or inspirational speakers um, if you're american hmm, you'll love it it. and actually when i go to the states which i do two or three times a year to speak i wouldn't say i adopt their approach because i don't because i don't think i could it would feel very wrong but I'm very aware that I'm speaking to an American audience and therefore speak to them ever so slightly differently. I drop the sarcasm for starters because they just don't get it. It's a waste of time. Um, my best gags are lost <laughs> <laughs> on them on that basis. But so I've, I've learned to speak to American audiences. Um, and that, you know, it's just a slight change of tone as much so as... you anything. don't do the Tony Robbins jumping up and down, hands I, in the air? I don't, know. I, I have the advantage of being six foot five so they can see me anyway. Well, he's like six... Something, is he? 6'8"? He's he? huge. Oh, he, does, he should stop jumping around then, really. Oh, so, God, but, he's, yeah. uh, he's a giant. Um, yeah, no, it's not my style. Yeah, and he has sticks and all sorts going on. Um, I've only seen clips. Right. Uh, someone did say to me, we should go to that. And I was like, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. thanks. No, thank you. Not my cup of tea. <laughs> I think there's been a couple events where they get you up. In fact, uh, Action Coach do one every year, and they kind of do this thing called Locking in the Learning. Right. And there's a collective groan as everyone gets up and goes, oh, God, we have to do that again. But by the second day, it's everyone's used to it. But the first one, everyone's like, oh, God. You do watch, I mean, I suppose this is like when you get, um, let's let's go with a hypnotist or somebody on stage that, or a comedian. You think, oh, God, don't, don't look at me. Don't, don't talk. You know, people, people get so scared of, of being engaged with by performers, I think, for fear that they're going to be made to perform against their will. And yet the irony is one of the most successful shows on TV is Britain's Got Talent, where people stand up in front of an audience and perform in the hope that people are going to like them. So there's an innate performer, I think, in everybody. Um, but in some cases, it's terribly well hidden. I think it's, yeah, I think it's unprepared. I think if you perform, but you know you can practice, you can get ready. Maybe. I think it's on the spot. You're now involved in my show. I've had that happen to me. We sat, stupidly went to a... Um, a comedy gig in Cleethorpes at the cinema. Yep. And the guy that was booked, uh, Reginald someone, backed oh, out. Oh, not uh, Reginald D. Hunter. Yeah, he was Menacom. And so the comic that they got to fill the gap, 
and and to be fair to him, it was a hard room because everyone was expecting to see yes. someone else, and half of the people didn't turn up once they found out and what basically want a refund. Okay. So the half that were left, obviously a much smaller group, yeah. less happy about the situation, um, and he he had a tough job, but instantly started picking on people in the front row and right. bringing them in, and one of them was me, and right. and he started a gag about going on a stag do. And he said to me, oh, have you been on a stag do before? And I went, no. And he went, oh, okay. And he said to me, oh, have you been on a hen do before? I was like, no. And he's like, well, this is not going well. Yes, go just really Taxi. started to bother. Yeah, so I felt, felt really bad for the guy. I should have just said, yes, I, I have. Because it didn't really involve anything that... I think having to make people laugh is a really good skill. Oh, um, difficult, difficult job. Um, being able to make people laugh, I think, is, is more useful if you can put it into context um, of the event that you're at. Um, and and that I think you know I I've always I've always been lucky I think that my my funny brain has been wired to my mouth quite quickly, and I you know if I go back to my school days I, I this is why I always used to get into trouble my school reports were littered with phrases like if Richard would just stop trying to amuse the rest of the class uh, and now I do it for a living um, but but I would never do stand up comedy because I think that's relentless need for the laugh to come but I do very much employ humour in my speaking subtly and sometimes too subtly for the Americans um, because then everybody relaxes. The, the key to public speaking is to relax the audience because then there's half a chance that they're going to listen to you mm. and, and most of us respond to humour. Uh, I, I always try my challenge to myself is never to have a, an opening line until the moment before I say it and then it can be entirely relevant to the event that I'm at. So you walk on stage not knowing your opening line until you're there. Correct. Wow. Uh, because it, then it can be absolutely contextual to the event that I'm at. And and you'll be amazed the number of times that it lands in your lap from either the previous speaker or the introduction or just something that you observe in the, the, the three steps up the stage that allow you to say the first thing that comes out of your mouth is entirely relevant to the event that you're at. So people can see that you are at the event and not just almost doing it by auto cue. Yep. Uh, and I think that relaxes people and then allows you to, to um, nev never, never not once, there you go, that's good English, have I failed to find a good opening line sometimes right at the last second. When you, when It's like the Rolodex in your mind, actors talk about this, that the Rolodex in your mind of your lines, when the moment before you need to give it, you've no idea what it is, and the moment that it appears is the moment that it comes out of your mouth. Um, so that fear... That's that's where the fear sits to a certain extent. It's not actually speaking. It's just thinking what you're going to say next. See, now you're putting me on the spot. I'm going to think <laughs> quickly. Um, I want to jump back a little bit. So you, you're involved in that amazing campaign for Coke mm. and some others. Did you then sell the business? Yeah, I I'd, uh, spent some time with some uh, business partners uh, that I needed... Uh, investment from in order to do the coke campaign because uh, if i'm honest i sat in coke's headquarters in london and when asked can you do this i said yes of course i can and then i came out of the room and thought okay how am i going to do that oh you did the brand uh, a little bit um because you know you're never going to say no the, you know, there was never a suggestion that, that at that point you're going well actually no we can't do that oh well okay next you know i wanted that that job so uh, uh, even to the point where at one stage they flew over their european management team to our premises to inspect what I said we had 
um, and uh, they said, so show us your um, the bespoke order management system that we're going to be using. I said, well, it's so bespoke that we're going to build it to spec. So well, rather than have something that we have to bolt into, we're just going to design it for you. And they said, wow, that's very forward thinking. Thank you very much. <laughs> so what is it you want exactly? And then wow. they, you know, taking notes, well, we'll build that then. Do um, they know this now? Well, they, if they're, they're listening, <laughs> <laughs> um, they didn't, they certainly, you know, I was convincing enough, I think, um, to suggest that we were capable of the very thing that they needed. Wow. And, and it was a competitive process. There were two other companies uh, involved in the, in the process, but we were actually the only one that had the experience of handling glass. And that was critical because it was, the element of this was that it was the glass bottles of Coke, the real um, iconic glass Coca-Cola bottle. And they really wanted somebody with that experience. So there were other people that were much more expert at printing, and there were probably some people with with a bespoke order management system already. Uh, but but we had some experience of handling the actual physical product, um, and that was that was the key to it. But yeah, it was um, if I can say the word bullshit, um, it was a little bit of bullshit baffles brains. Um, but yeah, you do what you do. And I would have thought after that was successful, business was. Good. I guess the contract for that was pretty big. That, that summer was good. Uh, yeah. 2014 uh, was as good as it gets. Um, uh, but then, as I said before, that campaign stopped. Um, and, you know, Coke moved on to their next thing um, and didn't come back to that thing. Uh, and, of course, you're then left with a, a Coke-sized gap in your in your business model. Um, and actually, by that point, I almost got to the stage where you think, this is probably about as big as, this is, you know, you've won the Champions League. You can only ever win the Champions League again. There isn't the... Super Champions League, um, and so when I, you know, in consultation with my business partners, said, actually, do you know what? I'm going to go and do something different. That was when that I think they still are involved in that world. I don't really keep up with it to be honest, but um, um, you know, I went off to do my own thing, which turned out to be public speaking and banging the drum, as they as they say. So just really having a trying to use. If, if you could describe what I do as a skill, trying to use the skills that I have to enable other other uh, campaigns to work. So what do you mean by banging the drum? <laughs> Campaigning, really. Um, putting a voice to a, to a problem and, and, and hopefully a, a translation of a problem. And so that, so that sounds, sounds dreadfully patronizing and I really don't mean it to sound like that, but sometimes you have to take what it is and, and then translate it into what it does, what it means. And, and the campaign that I'm talking about is the regeneration of Grimsby, the town deal, which I've become involved in as an ambassador, um, really to be that translator from what the high line of the investment and the plans and the regeneration are into what it actually means for the residents and the people and the businesses of Grimsby. So um, I'm sort of in that gap between, you know, a, a quite a cynical, um, that'll never happen, um, opinion, and I'm Grimsby boy, so I, you know, I feel as though I can stand on both sides of that argument quite comfortably. But somebody has to stand in the middle and translate, uh, or or adjudicate, or referee, or whatever it is between the government, the council, and the residents and the businesses. Um, yeah, come on then, let's be having you sort of approach. Um, so I got involved in that uh, six months ago. So for people who don't know which deal you're talking about, mm. can you just explain? what has happened in Grimsby. Yeah, so the town deal is a government pilot project that Grimsby was selected to be that pilot, the only town in Grimsby that has been given the funding um, from central government 
to see if it's possible to regenerate a post-industrial town that had a legacy industry that had died um, but didn't mean that the town had to die with it. Uh, and Grimsby was selected uh, to be that pilot project and I think somewhere in the region of 70 million pounds worth of central government funding has been made available. Seven zero. Seven zero. Wow. To regenerate the area between what's known as the Casbah, just over here uh, on the fish docks, all the way up to the Freshney uh, along what they're going to be uh, calling the Heritage Trail. Um, and Docks Beers, as we were talking about earlier on, are slap bang in the middle of that regeneration zone. Uh, will you know be a, 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 a fantastic place to be, um, and really see if we can take Grimsby from where it is to where it should be, because as I constantly remind people, the day before Grimsby became the busiest fishing port in the world, it aspired to be. So what do we aspire to be now? And let's be doing that. Because one thing you can guarantee in this town, there may be some people that don't believe it, but they're doers. So I just think they need to have some belief in that, that it's possible, and I will bang the drum about that possibility. Yeah, I 100% agree. This this area of the UK is massively underestimated. Totally. There's a lot of stuff that comes out of our neck of the woods um, that you you can be in any part of the country and say, oh, where are you from? You say, oh, Lincolnshire. Oh, whereabouts in Lincolnshire? Oh, like Grimsby, the coast. You might not. Oh, yeah, I know Grimsby. You mm. know, either. I think it was one of the only places that Morrison's put in their, their advert. They'd say, you know, we get beef and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, they, never, yeah. they, they never said we got the beef from Scotland. Or, no, no. But they, as soon as they say, and Grimsby fish, fish from yeah, Grimsby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow. That's, to the, for them to put that on, for me, was... It was it was nice to see, and I got I've told a lot of people. Oh, there's an advert with our name in. There's a huge irony, and I and I see this um, in the travelling that I do, certainly around the country. Um, Grimsby's envied by a lot of people and a lot of places and towns. Dover, for example, which you, we look upon as wow, Dover, busy place, you know, the port and the ferries and what have you. Dover want to come to Grimsby to see how we've managed to do it, how to to be that place. Surprising, isn't it? Yeah. Dover Rotary Club want to come to Grimsby to see how we manage to revive. You ask anybody here, what revival? Yeah. Yeah, because it, it's, it's our misery. We own it. You know, the, the, the thing about living in, in the town that you're born in is you own your own misery. Mm. Um, and it's only, but it's only yours. Anybody else has a go. Well, sorry, you don't be having a go at my misery. It's my misery. <laughs> um, the only way to change that is to change it. And it might take a generation, it might take two generations, it might take three generations. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, uh, you know, there were plans in place that are already underway. The problem at the moment is there's no visible sign of it. A lot of the digging is underground. Uh, the foundations are going in for this project. Um, and it's moving at quite the pace, actually. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be privileged to the information surrounding the project, which I can't talk about. Um, but having seen it and seen the plans and seeing what's already happening, trust me, in the next... Two to three years, you will you will start to go, oh my God. And then in the next five to 10 years, you'll start to go, wow. And then in the next 15 to 20 years, people are going, oh, you live in Grimsby, you lucky sod. <laughs> well, I hope so. But the biggest problem it's, that we've uh, got as a town is, and uh, you know, from a marketing perspective, is it would be way easier if this place was called Nicebee. Yeah, that I do get um, <laughs> I do get ribbed by some of, some of the people that live outside. I mean, if you're in Lincolnshire and you live in and around Lincoln, mm -hmm. You uh, almost have an air about you when you say, oh, oh Grimsby, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. a bit yeah. grim over there. Yep. 
And you go, well, actually, it's called Great Grimsby. Yeah, exactly. Don't um, forget it. Yeah. So I have, I have someone at another event, um, Deborah Cooper. Oh, yeah. You know Deborah. Yep. Um, and she put on a couple of events and she had that very story. Someone said, oh, it's Grimsby. And she said, oh, I always say some great Grimsby. And mm-hmm. ever since she said that, I went, God, I'm going to keep that in my back pocket. And it sounds trite, you know, and there's, there's, there's you know, making Grimsby great again and, and everything needs, a, every campaign needs a strap line and everything needs a focus. But actually all it really needs is people to believe that it's possible. Mm-hmm. My goal in life, genuinely my goal in life is to get people from that'll never happen to, hmm. <laughs> now that's a quantum leap for a lot of people. Yeah. But at that point, then they're doing their own work. But somebody needs to get them to that point. Uh, and I, you know, part of my responsibility and role within the the town deal project is to is to be that bang the drum. Um, you know, and, and if you if you tell enough people enough times something positive, then there's half a chance that they might start to think positively. And that's where shit gets done. Genuinely, and whether that's business, whether that's domestic, whether that's um, uh, civic where well, it doesn't really matter uh, you know look at Doc's beers okay here's a I said before it was a poster boy for the regeneration of the town you ever imagine a situation where the great and the good have stood on King Edward Street on a sunny Friday night outside a brewery drinking beer nope nope and yet especially in a time when most pubs and dr- drinking halls are all closing down are going the other going way going derelict yeah yeah and we're not talking about you know troublesome we're not talking about anything other than people having a nice time. It's possible. We do have nice people in this town, um, you know, and, and nice places. I've driven around tonight, actually, because I, I was at Docks earlier on, um, and then before I came here, I just sort of wandered around because I don't get the time that often to spend driving around. And, and all right, Grimsby's got some challenging places, like every town has. I mean, Christ, London has got some places that you wouldn't walk down at night on your own for love and the money. Um, you know, so we're not, we're not unique uh, in the sense that there are some difficult areas in, in, in the town. But there's some beautiful ones as well. Uh, you know, and it's, it's not quite the hole that we all keep telling everybody it is and yet defend it when people tell us it is. I've got this theory about that. It's a, it's a human sort of behavioral trait. And I use football as the example. So for 46 weeks of every year, football clubs around the country and fans of those football clubs fight each other uh, every Saturday. And then in the summer, uh, they all join together as England and then go fight everybody else. And I'm pretty sure that if the aliens ever came down, we'd join together with all of those people and fight them. Because ultimately, human beings are fighters. Mm. So my view is if you give them a cause, they'll probably fight for it. Because fighting against it is fighting against yourself. Why yeah. would you? Why would you possibly want Grimsby to get worse? If you, you know, if you had a vote, if we had a, a, a I'm not going to use the R word because it's against the law. But if we had a vote and you said, which would you prefer, Grimsby to be better or worse? Who in their right mind would say worse, please? So we're all agreed we'd like it to be better. Mm. So at the very least, we're all on the same side, moving at different speeds. Granted with different ideas and, and you know different outcomes but principally all on the same side so that's the drum I'm going to bang well I commend you for doing it because it's <laughs> uh, I, I bet it's not an easy job it's actually remarkably easy because when you meet people individually and, and this is why I think sentiment is such a hard thing to overcome because that's like a collective view of the opinion of the masses but it's never actually been asked individually when you meet people individually unbelievably easy to convince in fact most people already are so you're not convincing people you're just enabling them 
So I don't think it's anywhere near as difficult as people believe it to be. It's not helped by media commentary. It's not helped by perception. Um, it's not helped by history. You know, the last 30 years in this town has been quite difficult, but not impossible. As, you know, where we're sitting today, you know, in this wonderful enterprise zone, wasn't here that ten, long. Ten years ago, I there think you they, go. They, they built it. But it's here now. Um, you know, and then it's just the place that you go to. You know, we we adopt change so easily as a human as human beings, and yet we we fight the notion of it. I don't get that. You know, I I, I think one of the reasons that I've done the things that I've done in my business life is because I quite like the point of change, because that's where it's really exciting. That's the downhill bit on a roller coaster. Yep. Um, and and that's you know, so I I probably seek that thrill more than anything else. And then once it's changed, it's it's somebody else's problem. It's actually quite dull. But the, so this is probably where I can, my dad's genes are in me quite strongly at that point because he's like, well, let's jump off that cliff <laughs> and see what happens. I heard a lovely line the other day. Leslie Charlesworth Brown, who is a good friend of mine and is the deputy CEO at St. Andrew's Hospice, gave me a line a couple of weeks ago that her dad used to say to her, just leap and a net will appear. And you think, okay, I'm going to do that because what's the worst that can happen? We're all going to die anyway. <laughs> That's a bit morbid. <laughs> so you might as well, you know, we might as well try. Yeah. What's What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, I think there was um there was a conference that I went to, and there was a um there was a, a speaker that was kind of uh, singing the praise of vision mm. and not being a lot of. He said a lot of the um, people he meets, and he said the Brits are the worst their vision is so, 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 so diminished of what it actually could be. Mm. They set their targets very, very low. Mm. And he said, the only reason I can figure why is because it's safe. You know you're going to hit it. You're Anything bigger, and he always says, you know, if, if your dream doesn't scare you, it's not big enough. <laughs> and I <laughs> like that. Yeah, I do. Um, and he's an American-Australian. Wow. So he, they are kind of big, grand yeah, dreams. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he... he um, another similar saying he says you know what color is your helicopter not i would like a helicopter but <laughs> imagine what color it is you're already yeah, going to yeah. have one but and and that was like for me a big eye opener like whatever yeah. dreams you're going to set and and i do say to so i do a little bit of mentoring of st some startups okay nothing formal but they always say to me you know what what should i do in terms of goals and stuff and i just say well whatever you whatever you're thinking of probably double it because mm. you you will try and set yourself a really achievable goal. And if I look back on where we've been, um, pretty much every year we set a goal and then we, we hit it and we beat it. And mm. I think, oh, we probably should have set it a bit higher and then we could have, what is it, shoot for the shoot for the stars and yeah. you know, at least you'll hit the moon. That, that's, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're dead right. And, and you know, I, I, I'd like to think that the, that the town, the area that aspired to be the busiest fishing port in the world could aspire to be whatever it wants to be and then go and do that. Um, you know, we're already seeing the, 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 you know, the start of it with the renewable energy, um, offshore wind. Uh, you know, Grimsby has, has, has had a huge slice of luck dealt to it because of its geography. So now you've got the chance to take advantage of it. You know, mm. it used to be because of the deep water port. Well, that's, you know, not going to happen again. And anybody that thinks it is, is, is in La La Land. In fact, somebody actually said to me the other day that it's great, you know, we get control of the fishing again, but we've got no boats. They all went, uh, you know, so it's, it's <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you know, there's a certain irony there. But I, I think when you look at what's next, you, yes, Grimsby is always going to have that reputation 
and and so it should be. It was well earned and well deserved, um, and and continues to be. Um, but it's got to be more than that, uh, you know, to sustain and grow uh, an area, and not just this generation, but the next generation, to want to be here. There's an irony here that we are all on the end of an invisible bungee. Why are we all still here? I actually asked this question of the council not that long ago. What's the net migration figures for Grimsby? And he, they didn't know the answer, but he said, well, it's not much. No, because people are still here. Everybody's waiting to see what happens. The boots are a long way in the ground in this, in this area. You know, people say, well, what, why do you live in this area? Well, it's because it's home. And, you know, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a story I told a couple of years ago, and this goes back to the dawn of time. But when, when we first used to roam the earth, as whatever the species we were, Somebody figured out that if you plant a seed in the ground near water, it's got more chance of growing than you can eat. But you've got to sit and wait for the plant to grow in order to eat it. And the people that sat near water were very, very deep in the ground as a result of the length of time that they had to wait to eat. We live between two rivers. We're about as deep in the ground as it's possible to be in this part of the world. You don't come to Grimsby on your way somewhere. You come here to be here. So if you're still here, it's because you want to be. Now, the fact that you're a little bit pissed off that nothing's really happened for a few years, fine, do something about it. Lots of people are. You do, I do. We're surrounded by people, especially here on this business part. We're surrounded by the doers. We are actually a town of doers, workers. You know, there's no, there's no um, coincidence that, that the best-selling beer at Doc's Beers is hard graft. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and never say die. It's a good analogy. Well, yeah, but we are that people. We are that nomadic people that sat in between these two rivers and waited for our food to grow and that's why we're still here so i've never heard anyone put it like that before but it makes so much sense now it's it's the re you know the, there's always a reason for behavior mm. um and then it's what you do with it ultimately is going to decide what comes next you've got me excited about the area now good more than i was before good bang that drum I will. Well, I'm I'm going to now. I'm going to get a little badge. I'm from Grimsby. Ask me some questions. You're from Great Grimsby. Great Grimsby. That's it. That's the, the next thing. The marketing campaign. I'll, I'll I'll maybe lend a hand. Well, you know, it's it's. I I think it can be. It should be done by everybody, actually, because if you get them on a quiet moment, they're big fans. That's why they're still here. In a world where you can live anywhere, presumably where you live is where you choose to live. point mm. it's probably about a good good time to wrap up but i just got a few quick questions for you before we finish i can't believe that's done an hour, hours. hour and 40 minutes already oh, wow. um any good books that you'd recommend for people uh i am a big fan of fact not fiction um so i tend to read um stories of people rather than people's stories if that makes sense yeah. um so i've just read the unauthorized biography of sir philip green um, which is fascinating. Um, if you're any way interested in business and why people are as they are in their business, read that book. So Philip Green, I don't, I'm not familiar with. He the name. was the guy that well, he does own uh, Topshop, but he owned British Home Stores um, and sold it for a pound uh, to a convicted fraudster. Um, <laughs> and it's it's the story of his rise and subsequent fall, as it often is. Um, uh, it's called Damaged Goods. Uh, but it, it explains quite carefully um, and astutely why he is as he is in business. And it was all his mother's fault. 
Oh, really? And this is unauthorized. Spoiler so alert. someone else wrote this about him. <laughs> yeah, it was a Sunday Times journalist that wrote the book. Fascinating. But I, I'm, a much, I'm a much bigger fan of, of fact than fiction. So uh, Yeah, same. I, I can't read fiction. Yeah. I like fi- films, obviously, and, you know, stories. But, but when it comes to reading a book, I get engrossed in things that have actually happened and why. Um, ultimately, because it can be used anecdotally and, in, in, uh, you know, I can just steal it and put it in a speech. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other books? Um, tend to be... They tend to be biographies, really. Have um, you read uh, Branson's many biographies? Yes, several. Um, of what them. do you think of Branson? Tom Bower is one of my favourite authors, actually. Well, writers rather than author, because he's he is a, a writer of biographies. So if you ever come come across him, Tom Bower, B O W E R, he's he's very he has a very astute view of uh, some very famous people. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of his books. Thoughts on Branson? He's probably most business people's top you know if you list the people you want to emulate i i've read enough of his books now to be less inspired by him which doesn't always go down well with other people what are your thoughts well he needs to get a haircut but then that's just you know me me from a a slightly follically challenged perspective (laughs) being jealous um i think he is a prime example of somebody who has ridden their luck uh continuously and and it's just turned out quite nicely Thank you very much. And he would probably tell you the same. I don't think there is a degree of genius uh, that some people give him credit for. Um, I'm not saying that disparagingly because he's you know, obviously hugely successful. But, but when you read those books, you see where some of those bits of luck came to play. And you go, wow, well, if you know, that hadn't happened, then that, that. It's serendipity. I mean, you know, if, if, if ever, that, sh- that should probably be what's on his gravestone. The serendipity. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. It's been an I absolute have, pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. I mean, we covered a lot. I think we probably could have gone for another hour and a half. Well, I can always come back. We'll do a second, we'll do a, a roundup. <laughs> the and sequel. Hopefully, you can tell us more about whatever the secret plans for Grimsby are. Mm. Will we will we know roughly when this is? Is like a. It's this year. Su- su- okay. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating, actually. So uh, it's it's probably it's the first thing that's come along in the last three years that's tempted me back anywhere near. Um, direct commercial activity rather than theorizing about it. So, um, and with the with a with a product and a and a brand that rivals Coca Cola, and I don't mean it's Pepsi, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I just mean in terms of its uh, global position. Now I'm I've, I'm I'm gonna have to torch you to get these details. Anyway, gotta go. Bye. <laughs> This sounds really interesting. <laughs> it could be, uh, you know, and 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 it's going to be, it's going to be right in the middle of Grimsby. So um, yeah. I cannot wait to find out what that is. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. My I pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Lovely. Thank you, Richard. See you soon. <laughs>